0: You guys, and uh, now if you have your Bibles, oh, one other thing: if you notice, we have the neir tamid. Um, you know, in the, in the synagogue, you never have an ark without a Ner tamid, the eternal light, which hangs over it. And uh, in Jewish tradition, you know, the eternal flame was was to reflect the menorah that was in the holy place that represented the lighting of the menorah that was to stay lit all the time. So that's what they do in the synagogue. As we have the light lit over the ark within which the Torah scroll is housed... It's to remind us that the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and to our lives as we are guided in the steps of righteousness. It's to remind us that Messiah, about whom we've already made reference when we lit the seven branch menorah, is the light of the world and is the light of Uh, the messianic truth, and the fulfillment of all that the word uh, stands for. So Jerry and I have been talking about this, and uh, finally we were able to sit down and order one, so we we have that, and we're very grateful to sort of finish out the sanctuary, you know, the way it is to to look. So nothing magical about it, only that it signifies and symbolizes uh, God's holy word and his presence in our lives and through his word uh, among us as well. Now, if you have your your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter twenty-two. Tomorrow evening, uh, Pesach starts. Am I right about that? Tomorrow evening, right? And uh, our seder will be held on Friday Friday evening. In many churches across the world, around the world, uh, today they're observing that moment when Messiah entered into Jerusalem, was hailed as Israel's king. And you remember he rode in on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, and they laid out palm branches. These were all symbolisms that were pertinent among the Jewish people with regard to the king of Israel's appearance and coming. Palm branches are used on the Feast of Tabernacles. We know that we place the palm branches over the tabernacle and we're to be able to see through the tabernacle so we could see the stars above, the sky above, the clouds of heaven above. We're to be reminded of how fragile our lives are without the grace and mercy of God. We are just like tabernacles in the desert And unless God sustains us, there's no way that we could survive or endure the trials of life. And on the Feast of Tabernacles in the sanctuary, there is the palm branches that are held, the lulav branches, that are shaken and are representative of God's tabernacling with the Jewish people in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt for 40 years. And it's also used to beseech God that he might pour rain upon the land of Israel, which he gave to his people to inherit during the rainy season, winter and uh, spring. And if God answers their prayers, there would be both the former and latter rains. And so if you have a large uh, falling of rain on the land of Israel, well, then the crops will grow more heartily and be more numerous. Now, At the time when Messiah entered into Jerusalem, they laid out the palm branches because according to the book of Zechariah, when the Messiah comes, one of the festivals, and there are others, but one of the festivals that's particularly highlighted that the nations of the world will observe is the Feast of Tabernacles. And one of the reasons I think it's highlighted is because with the Feast of Tabernacles, there were special prayers that were offered for the nations and special sacrifices that were offered for the atonement of the nations as well. So when the prophets speak of the Messiah's return to reign over the earth, we're told in Zechariah, I think it's chapter 14, that the Feast of Tabernacles will be observed. So in the Brit in the New Covenant Scriptures, when Messiah is presented as entering into the city of Jerusalem, he's being hailed as their king. They're placing palm branches on the roadside because when the king comes, we will be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. When the king comes, we will honor him with the raising and the, uh, sh- and the movement, the waving of palm branches before him. Interestingly enough, in the book of Revelation... When John is brought up into the very throne of God and he sees the worshipers around the heavenly throne, he sees them carrying palm branches, honoring the Lord our God as the living King of all the earth. And so when Messiah is riding into Jerusalem... They have the palm branches strewn on the roadway. They're holding the palm branches. They're they're waving them. And they're saying, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Save us now. And they hail him as the king of Israel. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 22 and This event is recorded by all four gospel writers. You can read of it in Mark chapter 11. You can read of it in Luke chapter 19. You can read of it in John chapter 11 and then into chapter 12. Now, one of the themes or one of the lessons we should learn from the study of Scripture is that which takes up most time and space is more often than not most important in the writer's mind and estimation of things. So when all four accounts are recording this event, it means this is particularly important to all four writers. Whatever takes up most time and space in Scripture is probably most likely those passages that are most important for us to take home with us. So in the book of Acts, The passage that takes up most time and space is Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen. And that is a transition point in the book of Acts, the most important chapter in the book of Acts. From that point on, the good news goes into all the world and is no longer restrained among the Jewish people. Because remember, God had told his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Up until Acts chapter 7, the good news was pretty much hunkered down in Jerusalem and among the Jewish people. After chapter 7, we read of Paul's ministry and the message going out to the then known world. If you look at the Hebrew scriptures, the chapters that takes up most time and space in the book of Judges is Samson's life, most important judge to take home with us. Because that judge reveals to us how good things can be horribly squandered. When you look at a man like Samson, who is the strongest man, who is an individual who had taken a Nazarite vow, who is devoted to the Lord from the time of his birth, we see the immensity of his fall and the tragedy of his life. It's meant to be as a warning to all of us that no, how, no matter how high we may rise, no matter how spiritually we may become, there is always the danger of falling prey to sin in our lives and falling prey to those things that would take us from our service to God and the resulting blessings he would have on us. It is tragic to have on someone's tombstone he slew more people in his death than in his life. That at his death, there was more significance than in his entire life. That is a tragedy for any human being to have attached to his life. The life of Samson is meant to be a lesson to us all. When you look at the books of Samuel and Kings, the life that takes up most time and space is the life of King David. When you look in the Torah... The lives that take up most time and space are the patriarchs and Moses. Those are the most important aspects of Scripture. And in a very real sense, it reflects what's most important in our own lives as well. Whatever takes up most time and space is most important to us. When we look at the life of Messiah, what takes up most time and space in his three-and-a-half-year ministry as recorded by the four writers, is the last week of his life. His entrance into Jerusalem, his teachings during that time, his last Passover Seder with his disciples, his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, his arrest, his trial, his execution, and his resurrection. That takes up most time and space. In fact, it takes up more than half the entire Gospel of John. It is the most important part of the life of Messiah. And it starts with his entrance into Jerusalem. You can see it in Mark 11, Luke 19, John 12, and here in Matthew chapter 22. We can't look at all of these passages, but I do want to point out a couple of things that are striking to me. If you look at Matthew chapter 20, uh, 2021. As they approached Jerusalem, came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Yeshua sent two of his followers, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away and in fulfillment of what Zechariah had predicted in chapter 9, say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. These two statements that I've read to you, they, they signify or they strike me in this way. First of all, everything that transpires in the entire life of Messiah, but no less in the final week of his life, is fully under his control. When we read the account, we think, we think things are out of control. How is it that those that he's speaking to are not responsive to him? How is it that he is betrayed and arrested? How is it that he is then placed on the cross and executed? How is it that he's placed in the tomb? What we learn throughout all of these events is that none of them occur by happenstance. All of them occur by the will and power of God. Notice what he says here. You're going to see a man with a donkey, with a colt. Tell him, the Lord, the master has need for it, and he will give it to you. Perhaps he was a disciple of Messiah. Perhaps Messiah had already spoken to him. We don't really know the background. But what we do know is that was going to happen because Yeshua said it would. You're going to see this man. You're going to see he has the donkey and he's going to let you take it so that I may ride upon it. Why? So that I would fulfill what the scriptures said the Messiah was to do. which which was to come humbly and meekly, riding on a donkey, coming as Israel's king. And that is sort of the juxtaposition of things. He comes as Israel's king, but he comes humbly on a donkey. Not a warrior horse, but a donkey that signifies humility, gentleness, and thus Messiah was coming not to reign, but to suffer and die. He has been telling his disciples this, though they have not been able to get it registered in their minds. So much so that when Yeshua said this to his disciples, his chief disciple, Peter said, far be it from you. And Yeshua says, get behind me, Satan, for you have no interest in the things of God. Yeshua knew what he was to do and how he was to do it. Remember, Daniel the prophet told us exactly when Messiah would come on the scene of history in Daniel chapter 9, and now he must go to Jerusalem, now he must ride on that donkey, and now he must give his life a ransom for many. But when he comes into Jerusalem, he comes in at a very precise moment, for this is the week of Passover. This is when Passover is going to begin, Thursday night. And so, what the priests are doing is preparing the sacrificial Passover lambs to be offered on this occasion. Remember, this is one of the pilgrimage festivals in Israel, along with Shavuot and the Feast of Tabernacles, according to Deuteronomy 16. All Jewish males are to come up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord on these three occasions. Josephus tells us the city of Jerusalem could swell upwards of 250,000 people. Pilgrims camped out around the city. Therefore, the Passover lambs had to be offered and sacrificed in great numbers. Remember, every family would have a lamb to eat on Pesach night. And those families that would be too poor would gather with another family. So they're going to be slaughtering thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lambs for the Passover sacrifice and for the Seder meals, the service meals that the Jewish people are going to be observing. That means that the sacrifices are going on not just for one day, but for a number of days in advance, all day long. That means the sheep, the lambs, are being marched into Jerusalem, And they would come in what is today known as St. Stephen's Gate on the east side of Jerusalem because it is there that Stephen was traditionally associated, uh, understood to have been stoned. But that is the gate entrance on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives from which Yeshua had come. He rode down that road on his donkey, entered into the same gate, that the Passover lambs are also being brought in through. The lambs would make a left turn onto the temple mount to be taken care of by the priests. Yeshua goes straight ahead as he continues to speak to the crowds, eventually making the left turn going into the temple and cleansing the temple for the second time. He follows the same course that the Passover lambs have found, have followed. And it might be that he's on that donkey so that he's not mixed up in the crowd of sheep, but is sitting above them. The symbolism is stark, and it's readily apparent. Yeshua is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world, as John had said. And as the lambs are brought into Jerusalem and then up to the Temple Mount, they would have been inspected because there was not to be any spot or blemish upon them. And just as the lambs were brought into the Temple to be inspected, so Yeshua, the Lamb of God, during the course of this week leading up to Passover and leading up to his death, will be equally investigated to see if he is in reality the Messiah of Israel, without spot or blemish. So if you look at Matthew chapter 22, you'll find that the first inspection that takes place, or excuse me, let me just bring you back to chapter 21, when Yeshua comes into the city and all are hailing him as Messiah, And then he cleanses the temple, chapter 21, looking at verse 12, 13. He says, my house will be called a house of prayer. I think it's very interesting that he says, my house will be called a house of prayer. You are making it a den of thieves. Then when you come down to verse 23, he enters the temple courts. And now he raises a, que- a question is raised while he was teaching. The chief priests and the elders, they come to him. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to proclaim yourself as Messiah, to receive the accolations as king, to overturn the tables of the money changers, to kick everyone out? Keep in mind that he no longer was permitting movement In the temple area, carrying things, all operations were brought to a halt. And they're saying, by what authority do you do these things? And Yeshua, he responds by saying, I will tell you by what authority I do these things if you tell me, and everyone here who's listening, by what authority John conducted his ministry. Now, the reason he points his attention to John is because John is the herald of the king. You remember earlier, he was immersing Jewish people in the waters of the Jordan River. This was unheard of among the Jewish people. Jews were not immersed in water. Yes, there were those cleansing moments in, uh, in the mikvah that would take place, but that's not what John is doing, and the relationship has nothing to do with that. What John is doing has its parallel to what the Jewish people were doing when they made proselytes. Gentiles were immersed when they made a full-blown commitment to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what John was doing was not calling Gentiles to be immersed, but Jews to be immersed and to be immersed unto the remission of sins. That's what the Jews did to Gentiles. Jews did not do that to Jews. That's why the Talmud said all Israel has a share in the world to come. That's why the Midrash tells us that Abraham sits at the gates of Gehenna to guard it so that no Jews would go there inadvertently by mistake, making a wrong turn in heaven somewhere. It was Gentiles that were immersed, not Jews. And John is immersing Jews and by the multitudes. So the Jewish leaders sent out an observation party to find out what was going on. They observed and they saw many Jews were coming to John. Many Jews were being immersed by John. Many Jews were saying, forgive me of my sins to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They go back to the Jewish leaders and they said, the work that John is doing is significant. We need to investigate further. So they send out a second party and they investigate John. They say, Who are you? Are you the prophet? John says, I am not. They say, Are you the Messiah? He says, No, I am not. They say, Are you Elijah or one of the prophets? He says, No, I am not. So they ask him, Who are you then? And he says, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He quotes Isaiah 40. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah's passage in chapter 40. I am the preparer for the way of Messiah. I am the herald of the coming king. So now when Yeshua is asked, by what authority do you do these things? He draws the attention to John. And he says, by what authority did John conduct his ministry? The Jewish leaders inquire. They reflect. If we say that he was indeed a prophet of God, whose authority came from God, and therefore his baptism was of God, and therefore his teachings and proclamations were of God, then Yeshua will say, why don't you believe him? And why don't you accept what Yeshua said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Why don't you accept what you should, that John said when he said, He must de- increase, but I must decrease. Why don't you accept what John said, The one who's coming after me, I am not worthy to untie their shoe latchet. Why don't you believe him if you believe he's of God? They reason, well, if we say he's not of God, well, then what will all the people think of us? Because the people acknowledge he was of God and that he was sent from God. So being caught in the horns of a dilemma, they say to Yeshua, we can't tell. And in response, Yeshua says, well, then I have no basis upon which I am required to tell you by what authority I do the things I have done. Yeshua, of course, had been telling them all along by what authority he's been doing these things. He said earlier in John during the celebration of Hanukkah, The miracles that I do, they testify of me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. What I see the Father doing, that is what I do. He told them already, the authority by which I do what I do is the Father in heaven. But he did not need to explain it now because they were not asking him so as to know anything. They were only asking him so as to accuse him and to reject him. But they're not the only ones that are made to inquire. Later in John cha- Matthew chapter 22, we read in the early uh, verses, looking at verse 15. Notice that in verse 15, the Pharisees and the Herodians link up. Keep in mind, these two parties among the Jewish people were antagonistic to one another. The Herodians supported Roman rule over Israel. They were getting rich off of Roman rule because most of the tax collectors were Herodians that supported Herod, Herod's position as procurator and supported Caesar in Rome. They link up for the first time with the Pharisees, who despised the Romans. Many of the Zealots were of the Pharisaical party, and they despised them. But in this instance, because of their common avergence of or their common antagonism toward Messiah, they are united. And so they inquire, they inspect Messiah, and they say, "Is it right to pay tribute to Caesar?" Yeshua asks them for the coin, and he sees the Roman Caesar an inscription upon it. And he says to those who inquired, "Render the things to Caesar that are Caesar's, but render to God the things that are God's." And thus he is found to be without blemish and without spot before the Herodians. Following the Herodians, if you look in chapter 22, and you look at verse 23, you find the Sadducees then question the Messiah. I remember one of my Bible teachers back when said the Sadducees were those that rejected belief in the resurrection, and that's why they were sad, you see. (laughs) I thought that was pretty good. The Sadducees denied the resurrection. So they ask Yeshua. They tell Yeshua's story. They say there was a woman who was married to a man. And the man died. And the man's brother, according to Jewish law, leveret marriage. We can't get into all of it. But the, the husband's brother was then responsible to marry his brother's wife and to take care of her. So the brother marries her. And a short while later, He dies. And then another brother and another brother. There are 10 brothers. And all brothers find themselves marrying the woman, and they all die. And then eventually the woman dies. So they ask him, in the resurrection, if you believe such things, whose wife will she be? And Yeshua, you can just see, you know, you can visualize this. Because he says to them, You are so slow of heart to understand, to believe how foolish you are, he says. He says, first of all, you do not know the scripture. What a scathing indictment of any religious person in our day and in his day. Individuals that claim to know the word of God so much so that there's no resurrection. He says, you know, I don't want to be heartless about this, but you do not know God's Word. And they must have been dumbfounded by that alone. But if you don't know God's Word, then you cannot know the second thing Yeshua makes reference to, the power of God either. And then he talks about what the afterlife will be like, that we will not be like we are presently. There is no marriage in heaven, but you would have known that if you understood God's Word rightly. And you would know that there's a resurrection because God is powerful enough to raise the dead to life. Then the Pharisees step up. If you look at Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, they inspect Messiah. And they ask him, what is the great commandment? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. In other words, he ought to be first and foremost and permeate our entire existence. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the Pharisees are struck by that and they realize he answered correctly. So as he was inspected by the Herodians, by the Sadducees, by the Pharisees, he is found to be without spot or blemish. In other words, he's qualified to be the Passover lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Yeshua then concludes by asking them a question. How is it that David, in Psalm 110, the very first verse How is it that David said, My Lord said to... Or the Lord said to my Lord. And uh, how does it go here? Uh, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What makes that such an important passage is the Hebrew text. Because when he says the Lord... In the Hebrew text, that's the sacred name of God, the unpronounceable name of God, the yod Vovhe vav he name of God. Sometimes we say Yahweh. Others say a distorted interpretation of that name, Jehovah. But the sacred name of God is what's used. The Lord, sacred name of God, said, David is writing, said to my Lord. So the question is, Who is David's Lord? That's a very pertinent question because David's the king of Israel. He doesn't have a Lord. He only has subjects. So who is the Lord of David if it's not the Lord? The Lord is saying to David's Lord, but David doesn't have a Lord. Or does he? Yeshua is saying, asking, who is that Lord that is David's Lord? And the answer is David's son. How can David's son be David's Lord at the same time? It's not Solomon. That's his first son who does inherit the kingdom. But Solomon is his son, not his Lord or his king. So who is the son of David that could be both David's king and David's Lord and David's son? It's a very perplexing question, isn't it? And it's impossible to answer unless when we look at the scriptures, we read what Isaiah says about the Alma, the virgin, that we conceive and bear a son, and we would call his name God with us. The way that David could have a son that would be his Lord is only if David's son could be his God. And the only way David's son could be his God is if somehow his God can become his son. And the way that he can become his son is what Isaiah tells us, that the virgin will conceive and bear a child and it will be done by a miracle of God. And thus the virgin birth is pertinent, central, critical to Messiah being both David's king, Lord, and David's son. And so what... Yeshua is doing is he's now pressing them into the corner. And there is no escape. But the question is whether or not one will trust Messiah's words. And whether one will trust and believe in God. Now, just in closing, turn back to Matthew chapter 21. Poised between Messiah's entrance into Jerusalem as Israel's king followed up by the inspection of Messiah as the Passover lamb of God without spot and blemish is a little event that oftentimes gets interpreted wrongly because it's taken out of its immediate context. Remember, he's just entered into Jerusalem as the Passover lamb of God to be inspected to be the king of Israel, found to be without spot and blemish, and therefore he qualifies to give his life a ransom for many. He's obeyed the will of God completely, and he's been able to demonstrate his messiahship as he was inspected by the Jewish leadership of his day. He enters Jerusalem, an event takes place, and then he's questioned regarding his messiahship or his authority. But tucked between them is this event. Look at chapter 21, verse 18. In his return trip to the temple, he entered in the temple. Then he kicked everybody out of the temple. Then he goes back to Bethpage. Then in verse 18, he returns to Jerusalem early in the morning. As he was on his way back to Jerusalem, he was hungry He saw a fig tree by the road. He went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? He said, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive what you ask for in prayer. Now, the problem with this passage is that Matthew doesn't give us the whole story. In order to get the whole story, you have to go to Mark. So turn to Mark chapter 11. Look at chapter 11, verse 20. In verse 20, in the morning, now this is another day. This is probably the third day. Matthew's passage was the second day. This must be the third day. The reason is, look, in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Yeshua, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. So now we get a fuller picture. Matthew has blended two separate events together. Matthew told us he went out, cursed the fig tree. They saw it withered. They asked this, they were amazed, and then he said, "Have faith in God." Mark, Mark tells us it didn't happen like that. What happened was, on their way to the temple, he cursed the fig tree and it withered. They then went with him to the temple, and then they went back home. When they returned on the third day, they saw the tree that he had withered the day before, and they remembered how he had cursed it. And they said, and Peter remembered and said, look, the fig tree you cursed has weathered. Look at verse 27. He says, have faith in God. That's the message that the withering of the fig tree is meant to convey. The reason it's sandwiched is because as Yeshua enters Jerusalem, what was a problem, and you'll see it in Luke 19, we didn't turn there, was that the people, though they hailed him as king, Luke tells us that Yeshua says to them, do not mourn for me. And he mourned for them because he said, you do not know the day of your visitation. In other words, they were hailing him as king. And it does say, if you look at John's passage, John 12, That it was his disciples that line the streets that hail him as their king. But the city as a whole, though they may be following the lead of the disciples, the followers of Messiah, the city as a whole has not genuinely believed in him. And thus he says, he mourns for them because they did not know the time of their visitation. They did not recognize the Messiah was right there whom they were hailing as king of Israel. They were saying the right words, but they did not yet personally embrace him to be their king or Lord. The withering of the fig tree was a lesson about faith, that if one does not trust in the Lord, and more specifically, if the nation of Israel does not trust in Messiah, they will wither and they will experience suffering. And they will experience a death. And so he says to his disciples, I think it's very clear in Mark chapter 11, have faith in God. And so his entrance in Jerusalem was meant to ignite, ignite faith in God, which is exhibited by faith in the Messiah. And when Yeshua concludes his message by saying, how can David's son be also his Lord? There is no way to rationalize that apart from a miracle of God like the moving of a mountain into the sea, a virgin giving birth to a child. Have faith in God. And you'll notice this. I had not noticed this before, but you'll notice this. Each one of the challenges to Messiah, the Herodians, the Pharisees, and Sadducees, each one of them, Yeshua challenges their inability to believe in God. If you knew the word and you believed in the power of God, you wouldn't ask such foolish questions. If you believed in God, you would love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you did, you would accept me because I was sent by him. He says, To the Herodians, if you believed God, you would render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, but you would render to to God the things that are God, and you would trust in me. The whole episode revolves around the necessity of faith. And the reason why Israel will experience judgment by the Romans in 70 AD is precisely because their lack of faith in God and consequently in his son. The message of this day when Yeshua rode into Jerusalem is that he is the Savior, he is the Passover lamb, he is the Messiah, he is the King of Israel, and to benefit by it, one must have faith and trust In Him. And when you do, ask what you will and you will receive. And the thing that you will receive is Him. And that's what Messiah is drawing our attention to. We need Him, not things around us. We need Him and His Word. And thus when He enters into our world, be it in Jerusalem 2,000 some odd years ago, or into our sphere, wherever we work, by a, work, a fellow worker who shares with us the good news of Messiah, or whether it's here this morning, if you've never heard of him or accepted him for yourself this day, he's entering your world like he did in Jerusalem. And the question is, will you respond to him and have faith in God? Believing in Messiah is having faith God, What must we do to do the will of God? Yeshua said, believe in the one whom he has sent. I pray no one fails to be responsive to his love and to his grace. You can investigate him all you like. You will only find him to be the one who could meet your need and mine. And our greatest need was our need because of our alienation and separation from God. He has come to restore us unto himself and to have life and to have it more abundantly. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this moment in our calendar when we can reflect on this most important moment in the life of Messiah. It is that moment that triggers the redemptive, atoning grace of God's coming to fruition. And so, Father, as we think of Messiah as King, we think of him as Son, we think of him as Savior, I pray that each and everyone here this morning knows him to be all of that and perhaps more. Now, while everyone is praying, if there's anyone here who has never invited the Lord into their life and would like to do so, I would be happy to pray for you, even in this moment. And all you need to do, just raise your hand, put it down, and I will pray for you, asking that the Lord would come into your life, make you a new creation in him, and grant you fullness and fulfillment in a way that you have never understood before. So if there's anyone that perhaps God's word uh, has impacted and you'd like to receive him, I'd like to pray for you. So, Father, we commend ourselves to you and we pray that your will would be worked out in and through us. May we be lights of salvation, lights of Messiah to a dark and fallen world. May we rejoice, our King has come, and we are following the Savior of the world. For we pray in his name, amen.